Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week, Horace returns with a great discussion about what we measure in micromobility and transport in general and why that matters so much. We also dig into the recent announcement of the T50 supercar from Gordon Murray and explain why we, two micromobility nerds, got so excited about a preposterously expensive car. In news, Giant, the largest bike manufacturer in the world, announced record Q2 sales of $667 million with a profit of around $70 million, up 25% on last year on the back of higher margin e-bikes and approved efficiencies. This feels like we're on the cusp of something. Clearly huge demand at a time that the auto industry is seeing a 20% decline on auto sales for the year. Expect to see Micro to continue to grow from strength to strength during this recession. In racing news, you'll hear on this podcast that Williams Advanced Engineering has been picked as the technical partner for the upcoming e-scooter championship to develop the chassis, battery system and powertrain for the new e-scooter championship for the first two seasons. This news comes off the back of the annual Race for the Rail competition in the US last week, with a field racing one wheels down a steep mountain track to the finish line, streamed globally to tens of thousands. Horace has been saying it from the beginning, but we're finally starting to see the world of micromobility racing take hold. And with that, here's Horace. Welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Horace Deju. How are you today, Horace? I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. I can hear, I can hear the, uh, the sunshine. I can hear the sunshine and the birds and the lake and the wind and whatever it is that you have in the background there. It sounds delightful, like a, like a European summer. Indeed, and it, it's it's uh, it's maybe a little bit on the warm side, uh, especially for for Finland. But right now we're enjoying like 21 degrees Celsius, which is about 74, 73 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's a brilliant summer day. Um, I can imagine things are melting in Finland at that temperature. Well, people can't really cope, but you know. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, it's been a great summer. Um, so. Yeah, no, I, I think I think there's been a lot of debate about um, the future of micromobility, and we're, we've we've seen um, good news, bad news, uh, and I think we'll address uh, some of these in a forthcoming uh, major event uh, online. Yeah, the, and, uh, the State of the Union is that what we're going to call it? We'll figure it out. I don't know yet the naming, but yeah. I think we're going to do a status report uh, of our own. Uh, you probably have seen some from from sources, but I think that the um, you know not, not, you know within the next few weeks we'll have a we'll have a good summary of what where we are, um, especially as. Things are beginning to sort of come into the picture. It's been a very difficult period where we just didn't know what to look at as far as data, and mm. um, or or nobody knew what to measure because there there are you know conflicting um, signals coming in, and this is true also of the you know the impact of the pandemic on society. In some cases, the the numbers are atrocious. In other cases, they look quite rosy and people are seem to seem to be actually quite optimistic about the, the what follows which is which is uh you know whether you're looking listening to the 
to the to the uh, some of the uh, health data and, and, and market data, which are different and apparently in opposite directions. But uh, you know that's kind of a, a reflection of the uh, of, of of the uncertainties out there. But I think in the micro world, we also have questions of uh, good and bad. And um, and I you know I don't want to get into some of that yet because I still we're still preparing our our. Um, our point yeah. of view. Well, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully, hopefully, we should have something to announce on that in the next little while. But I do know that you're you you are going to be giving a talk uh, pretty soon, uh, which I think you know when you were describing it to me, I thought that would be an, uh, of interest for our listeners. So, do you want to give a kind of a basic summary sure. of what, what it is that you're thinking about? Yeah. So this will be actually presented to a McKinsey audience. The question I wanted to address was, how do we actually measure? micromobility. Uh, in some ways, we've kind of already been guilty of uh, being, being um, or I have been guilty of being, uh, of being, being premature in my, in my measurements, because I, I certainly grabbed whatever data we could find and, and, and put it up there in, on the slide. Or we put it out there as graphs that we, we, we handed out at our conferences or we publish in our blogs. Um, so do you mean like the trip data from Lyme and Bird? Yes, uh, yes, exactly. Like the Lyft and Uber data, for example. Exactly. So, so yeah. the question always when you're doing an analysis, and I'm going to go back in time now and to sort of look at a little bit of history because it's a bit striking. I, I referenced, uh, I reference now a book called The Rise and Fall of Infrastructure uh, or Infrastructures, plural, uh, by Arnulf Grubler. And I think he's at mm -hmm. Yale. This has been a very influential book in my life. I actually began looking at it um, more than 10 years ago. Uh, and um, I think it was linked in, in, in a Wikipedia article of all places, like it was linked as a source. And I was able to obtain a copy, which has actually been out of print for a long time. But there were some PDF copies, and I think they are still available um, from, from the institute where he works. Uh, or has worked, which published it. But it was one of these scientific books. It's, it's you know, through a scientific publisher. It's not, uh, you know, a mainstream book. So The Rise and Fall of, of, uh, of Infrastructures, and it was written in the 90s. It's not a recent thing at all. Um, but it, um, it inspired me to look at uh, a lot of data on S-curves, uh, on adoption curves, in other words, and looking at really long, long histories of... Um, of the adoption of innovation. Now, this is particularly focused on transportation. He goes and into the history of transportation infrastructures, namely uh, canals, which are the earliest, um, mm. followed by railroads, followed by road networks, followed by aviation. Uh, but he looks at other infrastructures in energy as well. And, you know, uses, uses the same modeling technique, which is uh, the adoption curve, which has a mathematical function. And then he compares these adoption curves to each other and also to determine causality and maybe predictions about the future. But it's more about the technique and the data. And some of the data is really, really fascinating because it's so old. It's come comes from the 19th century or even earlier when you're dealing with, uh, with canals. Um, but let me give you some flavor of the way we evolve in our measurements about these very things. Now, this is, again, an interesting pattern you can recognize across the whole discussion of the, of the history of infrastructures. For example, if you look at the rail network, 
Uh, it's actually very similar in terms of the measurement of its adoption rate versus canals. And it was by measuring the geographic spread of the network physically, meaning the number of miles or, or, or kilometers of, uh, of, of lines, of, of, of rail, rail lines in the case of rail or mm -hmm. canals themselves. So what you were proud of in the 19th or 18th centuries, like we've delivered so many thousands of kilometers or miles and miles of, of lines connecting uh, cities. And so the problem was at the time that you, you, know, you measured success but your ability to deploy lines that we didn't count locomotives, we didn't try count coaches, we didn't even count passengers so much, or fuel consumption in terms of steam or, or coal. We measured the 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 lines of uh, of conduit, the, the the thing that we ride on, uh, in a sense, mm. which actually was the critical element. Of course, it was difficult to obtain. Uh, permits, it would, you, you needed to gain access to the land, the right-of-ways, uh, and by the way, that led to the same uh, uh, development of, of communications infrastructures because those transportation infrastructures became communications infrastructures, and, and that's how we also end up with where the telegraph lines were laid. It was on the back of the and railroad. And of contiguous corridors? In, in the main trunk lines, but really the big, the big development was when it, you, know, you had all the branch lines and you went to every small community with rail. Um, and so the ability to cover the landmass of, of, let's say, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, United States, etc., all of those industrializations occurred on the back of this rail network. So in, like in 1840, there were maybe 50 lines in the whole of the United States, meaning, you know, point A, point A to point B. So there were like, you know, 50 cities mm. connected. But by 1865, and that's only 25 years later, there was almost every community, thousands of communities were connected. And that's an S-curve. You can kind of, you know, track how quickly that happened. Um, and then you set the maximum point, which is the saturation when every community is connected, and then you draw the curve and show how quickly that happened. Now, implicit in that, and I, I studied this for years, and I was so obsessed with how fast things went and how slow things were, went, and what, what is fast and what is slow and why. But in, the, in, in stepping back, you ask, you've got to ask yourself, that you, what are you measuring? Again, we're measuring the adoption of rail through the number of kilometers of lines. Now, if you mm. fast forward to the adoption of the automobile, we actually measured a completely different thing, which was the number of cars registered in, a, in the population. Uh, mm. A proxy for that would be the number of cars sold, but really the number of cars in use, which is registrations, was actually the more interesting figure. The cars sold was more like, you know, day-to-day -day metric of, of how companies perform. But as far as society, you would want to know what percentage of every you know, of all the households or all the individuals owned the car or used the car. And this is what, how everybody measured it, whether it was the United States, the UK, Germany, etc. So we have data, historic data from the 20th century on the adoption of the automobile. Again, I'm sticking with uh, transportation now. So rail, it was miles of, of track um, and cars, mm -hmm. it's, it's number of vehicles registered and everybody started to plot all these wonderful graphs showing just how quickly that was taking off in every country. And we still do. We still measure the adoption. I published and actually spoke on this subject at the last conference. I, you know, I pointed out how many cars are on the road today, how many cars will be on the roads in 2050. 
how do we get from here to there? What are the consequences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Can we actually believe that future will serve the majority of people in the world, of which there'll be, you know, 70% in urban centers? So this is, this is, this is a fascinating thing. Now, of course, again, doing all these comparative analyses within the car versus X world, it's, it's natural that you count of you kind of count vehicles. You count the number of vehicles per household or per, per nation. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. It, that is not the way we measured transportation for rail. Now, if you go fast forward from, from the early days of the car, again, measuring vehicles, and then you let's go to aviation. How does the aviation industry measure its success, its ability to have reached more and more customers, etc.? Well, they actually measure passengers or maybe passenger times distance, like passenger miles, they are completely obsessed on a whole different level. They don't count airplanes. They don't count even airlines or airports, which, you know, you might think if you're like in the age of rail, you might be counting airports. Hurrah, how many airports exist? How many airports Mm -hmm. did we build? No, that's not that interesting. Um, The industry measures fundamentally the number of passenger miles. And then you can see beautiful S-curves of how quickly that rose and how you know enabling technologies, whether it's propeller or jet or wide-body jet or uh, you know you know modern composites, would affect that you know and economics of of, of air air travel. So we have three major transportation revolutions spanning 200 years, from rail to car to aviation. All three use different methods to measure their own success. And they're not comparable with each other. So you can't go back to the car industry and say, hey, wait a minute, uh, shouldn't be using, using passenger kilometers. Well, and this is where some people try and then they get rejected. They, people push back and then, you know, they say, well, it's not fair to do this. And then I'm using air quotes here in the word fair. Um, they'll say, you know, it's apples and oranges. You get beat up like this also when you're doing anything in the computer world, because if you want to try to compare phones with PCs, People say that they're not comparable on the same measurement. And why is that? It's a very interesting question, isn't it? Like, you know, why didn't we establish in 1820 a standard measure of transportation and stick to that forever? Like always saying, you know, what matters is going A to B in time C. You know, obviously that's what people want, but that's not what industries deliver and that's not what industries measure of themselves. This is a crucial thing. It's a meta thing that actually affects every business when what the industry cares about is basically attached to it the way it earns its money and what the buyers care about which is really a job to be done question right but because they are different totally it's a job to be done question absolutely i'd also say as well that it's well wouldn't that also then set up and then dictate how infrastructure how governments would fund and think about infrastructure absolutely absolutely like stalin think about for example like the you know you you have governments who will say well we need to increase the amount of vehicle kilometer traveled or um Mm. for example for cars and so naturally the response is we're going to go build bigger roads because that Mm. is the way that we will exactly increase this to be yeah absolutely right so so because the consequences of this decision and this choice of measurement affects everything it affects regulation it affects uh government planning it affects city planning it affects uh, uh our communities in deep deep ways and this is why you know a lot of the advocacy that goes against the grain on cars is effectively saying you're measuring the wrong thing um and so mm. it's it's like saying you know we we we, we you know cities want to deliver or states or whomever wants to deliver miles of road uh industry wants to deliver a number of cars and ownership of cars as a measure of wealth and yet 
people want to connect to each other, which is a completely different thing, which is why, by the way, when they actually get that done via, let's say, another means like the Internet, people are shocked and surprised. Where did that come from? But let me continue on this thread because I wanted to continue mm. after the three main modes that we talked about of the 19th and 20th century. There's this question about micromobility. And the question would be, what is the right way to measure micromobility? And I asked this question as a sort of the, the, the uh, what is the, the rhetorical question for, for this talk. Um, before I give you a few answers, let me also step back and give you the perspective outside of transportation. Let's go to communications for a moment. This is the old-fashioned, how do I make a phone call or how do I connect with somebody? Well, here again, you can see the same cadence, the same change as the industry changes, as the technology changes. So in the landline era, similar to the railroad era, right? This happened in the 20th centuries when everybody wanted to build telephone networks. We all effectively measured the network size. So we measured connections. So how many households, but really what was more important about that is it's called Metcalfe's Law, is the value of the network grew as the N log N of the number of nodes in it. And it was essential that more and more nodes were on the network. And that was what drove the communication network for, for nearly a century. But in the deregulated era, when everybody was connected, we switched to a different measure, which was, you know, minutes or, you know, how many dollars did we collect for phone calls themselves. So it wasn't the network, but rather what it delivered, which was talk time, effectively, although not quite what it delivered. But it, it really was, mm. everyone that was obsessed is like, okay, how many minutes of long-distance calls can we make? Because local calls were free, but long-distance cost money. Again, you see, follow the money. So the industry became obsessed with measuring minutes. F go forward into the cellular phone era, and then the, the conversation was all about ARPU. ARPU means average revenue per user. Now, this is, was a different measure than minutes, which was by household, presumably, by billing statement. And mm -hmm. now it just sort of became by user because it was more than one phone per household. We started talking about ARPU. Now, as we move into the 5G era in terms of communications, I leave it as an open question, as, as I do with the micromobility question, how will we measure success? what is the industry going to turn to? So let's, let's put that aside and let's go to the next question. Computers. Compu the computer industry, again, born in the post-war period, mostly an industry serving large companies, and the so-called computers at the time were called uh, mainframe computers. Um, and there, the time of the CPU was measured. It's like how much, it was a time-shared system. It's like how much, how much does your project need in terms of CPU time? And the allocation of CPUs uh, was really important because that was the most constrained resource. As we move to the PC, what mattered was units sold. So this was on. This is what Microsoft was built on. This is what Intel was built on. And Microsoft selling licenses per CPU. Intel actually selling the mm -hmm. CPU itself. In the smartphone era, however, although we went through a unit phase, now we're in the subscription phase. So the idea is like when you have a smartphone, everybody's now touting, look how many services we have subscribers for. And this is what Apple is competing on, and that is what Google is also competing on effectively with Android. So we moved through, again, three stages. Now, when we go into the wearable stage or maybe something to do with augmented reality and computing, how will we measure that? Again, I leave that as an open question because nobody actually knows the answer right now. We have some theories, but nobody has actually figured it out. What is the business model for wearables that's distinct from the era that came before it? 
Moving to the next question, what about the internet? The internet went through the same thing. In Internet 1.0, which was roughly speaking late 90s to early 2000s, we measured clicks. Remember Yahoo and all those mm -hmm. ad banners and the things you were expected to click on? Everybody was looking for a way to monetize the internet through clicks. Then we said, well, it's actually not just clicks. We want people to linger. So Apple 2.0, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Internet 2.0, we were measuring so-called eyeballs, how much lingers, the people's time was spent on watching the content and lingering over something. I mean, even now, that's how Facebook reports it. Absolutely, like absolutely. How many, how many MAUs and then how many minutes per, per day would you expect a user to be Exactly. Bingo, you said it yeah. better than I did. Um, but in social media, and speaking of Facebook, we are also, like if you look at any YouTube video, you're always in, in you know, and uh, encourage to uh, uh, share, link, uh, sorry, sh uh, um, uh, like, uh, subscribe, and comment. Okay, so these are measures of engagement. This is not just lingering, not just watching, not just clicking, but like really passing it on to someone else. So let someone else also be, you know, act as our distributor effectively. Send it to your friends is a key element. Okay, get the engagement up and up and up. So this is in the social media era. Again, we move we move from clicks to linger time to to engagement time. Um, and, and, and then there will there be another era that follows this probably. I'm not sure what it will be, but it's likely to exist and it's also likely to be different. What about entertainment? Yet another industry, you know, media, media. This is television, this is movies, this is music. In the recorded era, and this is again, I'm not talking about pre-recording, so roughly speaking 20th century here, we, we measure in units of, sell, of, of media sold. So, you, you know, records sold or tickets mm. sold or, or, you know, how, much, how many of these uh, monet, monetized units did you, did you ship? Uh, in iTunes, we measured, or iTunes era, which began roughly in 2004, we measured downloads, and at least for the music industry and later also for the film industry, it was like how many times did you download a particular song item or a particular movie or TV show? And now in the streaming era, we're measuring subscriptions. And notice how, how mm. subtle, you know, each time it happens, it's like it feels natural, but notice how big the gap is between now and then. So if you go back in history and ask, well, how long did these changes take place? So I mentioned communications. Well, going from landlines into 5G took 50 years. Let's look at computing. Going from the mainframe era, which you know, you know, arguably ended in 1981 with the launch of the IBM PC, until the smartphone era, approximately 40 years. Let's look at internet advertising. Again, internet did not exist much before 2000, and we're 2020, so we're about 20 years into that era. Entertainment, again, going from recorded uh, CD, the land of the CD, and the beginning of iTunes until the present, we're talking about 15 years. So we, you can see from 50 down to 40, 30, 20, and so on, and, and things are speeding up. So the, the, these, these industries I described, the, the, you know, that these are, I'm intimately familiar with, even more than I am with, with transportation. Um, we saw accelerating change. We saw four, typically four transitions in the metrics, we saw four transitions in business models, we, four, we saw four transitions in what we measure. So the question again, back, what is the measurement for micromobility? Now, there are many candidates already being cited all the time. We're throwing these things out all the time, and I'm guilty, as I said, as everyone else is. We, we've measured things like modal share, 
We've measured things like fleet size, the number of trips, mm. the number of kilowatts, the, num the, the number of kilometers delivered, uh, unit economics, all kinds of measurements in there, right, in terms of uh, utilization, uh, vehicle costs, um, uh, capital applied. Well, what about carbon? Certainly we've seen measurements on that. How about number of cities that are actually using micromobility? This is where it's available, mm. and that's a huge indicator, right? How about the number of operators themselves? I mean, how many companies are involved in this? How many are actually deployed worldwide? Um, how big is the geofence area that they're covering, right? This is another thing that's been thrown out there as an indicator, right? Or how many form factors? That's our own um, uh, uh, landscaping, right, that we do as far as mm -hmm. the, the industry is concerned. What are the different form factors and what are the different business types that are out there? And what about just parking itself? Like, how many slots are we allocating? Well, I was going to say infrastructure as well. So, what, like, what are the bike lanes that are... Yeah, I, I like, may have skipped the, the over bike lanes. lanes. Yeah, vehicle lanes, bike lanes, or, real estate, yeah, things yeah, we're taking okay. away from the yeah. car. And then you, you, you ask yourself, sure, sure, we can actually put all these down on paper, try to collect data on. In fact, that would be wonderful to publish a state of the, uh, of the industry report where we try to get all of this in one thing. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the problem is you could do this for any of the other industries, but they all settled into a de facto standard, long usually after this, the industry was born, where we agreed mm. that this is the measure. And the reason we did that, by the way, if you go back and ask why were these measurements uh, settled on, it's because that's where the money was. It's always an economic question. You know, it didn't make sense to measure roads in the car era because actually the automakers were not responsible for that. That was taken over by government primarily, and that came out of taxes, and it was a non-profit, effectively not a profitable industry. And so you focus where the profit is, you focus where the energy is, you focus where the talent is, you focus all of that, where the market capitalization of the companies that participated most profitably was located. And so this is an interesting point. We could have measured a lot more about the car industry, and we, we, there are data, there certainly is data, but that's fundamentally today the number one. There are these sort of headline uh, measurements. So let me put forward, this is kind of our exercise today, let me put forward some measurements that might still emerge because the business models might still be incomplete and, and they haven't emerged yet. Mm. So for example, uh, what about if the industry becomes a franchising business? Let's, uh, this is our hypothetical, by the way. I don't know if any of these will happen. But it, like, if you're in the restaurant business, you're measuring effectively number of restaurants. So McDonald's will tell you same store sales. They'll tell you how many, how many uh, you know, uh, restaurants are out there. Um, what if that develops as an industry? Like, so we start to think about franchising and what are the economics there and what, what are the numbers there? What about safety? What about insurance claims? What if that question comes up and saying, well, yes, that's seen as a negative, but what if actually it is also seen as an industry growth area, like we, we solve safety concerns? Also, as a result, maybe you know, help with the car claims as well. I don't know. It's a big, big question mark. What about destinations mm -hmm. we enable? What about things like measuring where people go as kind of places that they couldn't have gone before. And that would be more of a real estate question, but what if that becomes the heart of the industry? What about subscriptions? We don't throw these around very much, but they're certainly happening mm -hmm. and starting up. Subscriptions, maybe that's the way to do it, the way, the way phones are today now. Um, what about exercise? You know, a lot of excitement now with Peloton, a lot of excitement with uh, active 
you know, behavior, rumors that Apple's going to launch its own subscription-based exercise routine. What if, you know, you end up on the watch ring? I use this as a kind of a metaphor, your Apple Watch tracking your movement and then being able to attach micromobility to that, or it's at least some variant of it. And what about social mm -hmm. capital? The biggest thing of all, the fact that a lot of people right now aren't quite, haven't quite figured out how to really capitalize on the sense of uh, virtue creation. It could be signaling, it could be actual, but it's basically the question of virtue. And that might actually be driving a lot of the decisions, right, job to be done here, right? So the questions of whether people would take one mode or another may be driven by this interest of selflessness. And of course, there's also selfish reasons, but there's selfless reasons as well. But this kind of question of open, you know, what are the right metrics? So I would only put forward these six alternatives I just mentioned as kind of a wild guesses. Happy to get feedback on what you might think would be an alternative. But it's, it's, it's our job right now, I think, in the, those of us who are leading in the industry is to figure this out and not just mm -hmm. rely on the dozen other metrics that we, we've seen, they're just out there because they were convenient. They were not out there because they were the right measurements. The question is, what should be the measurement for micromobility? And sort of, I'm putting it out there as an yeah. open question. Totally. Well, it's, so there's a, oh, this is so good. Um, there's a couple of things in, in there that are really interesting for me. One is um, the, the, the measurement of trips, I think, has come about because a lot of the people who ended up in the shared micromobility industry came from the ride-hailing industry, where that was the primary metric. So when I was at Uber, that was all we cared about, was mm. how many trips per week are we doing? And it hey, was but is that the right measure? You know, that's a good question. Oh, no, 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 I completely for, for agree. Even for, even, saying, for tri even for ride-hailing, I would question whether that's the right measure. It's the convenient one, it's oh, the one that's tied I, I, to I money, but is it agree. the right one? Yes, no, no, and I agree. I don't know if it was either, but I just certainly know that that was the way that, you know, that was the top line metric against which we did all our fundraising mm -hmm. because we could prove that we were far, growing faster and bigger and it was an easy comparable or like it was an easy thing that we could compare to other companies. Mm -hmm. And so that was what enabled the funding. So yes, in that way, that was the right thing to measure, quote unquote, you mm -hmm. know, because that was where the, the money, <laughs> not profit, but that's where the money that, was a, that went into the industry came from, was through those metrics. Um, the other thing as well that I'd also say as well about uh, micromobility and trips is that that only covers shared micromobility. And as mm -hmm. I think about owned micromobility, we still don't have any way of reasonably tracking trips in a way that would aggregate all of those details together. We have no visibility, almost well, no visibility. Well, there's modal the share, which is kind of encompassing all, all private and shared, but it's more like, you know, what, in, what, what, sure, what but cities try to very, Exactly, and it's cities trying to measure it, and it's not necessarily, you, 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 as you said, you know, the, the, the penny dropped with me when you said the reason we ended up with those metrics as the ones that mattered was because that's where the money was. Well, I'm not going to be as a bike manufacturer like Van Moof or Specialized looking at modal share and saying mm -hmm. that's the thing that determines whether or not I'm making money or not. I don't exactly. know what it is. I think and that's the problem sales. is though, though there at this moment so many different micromobility companies, there's so many different micromobility business models that actually, and, and this is by the way a good thing, this is a very good thing because it's, it says that there's a huge, huge um, uh, 
you know, uh, experiment going on, a huge diversity of ideas and, and, and opinions and, and tests that are being done. And th that people don't know the right form factor, they don't know the right business model. And by the way, this was the same thing with the internet before the click era. Like nobody knew in the 90s how people would make money on the internet. Everything from charging people to you know, dial up, which was AOL, to uh, mm. uh, figuring out ways to s sell stuff to them, which was Amazon, eventually became Amazon. There were a lot of other web shopping ideas. To search, which was initially done very differently than, than what Google ended up with, which was a key keyword uh, auction, effectively, that it created. Um, and so a search term auction. Uh, and, and so nobody was quite sure how people would make money, even though it was clear that there was a huge amount of value in this. And I know I was there in the 90s and we, we were like, you know, I was at university from the late 80s and we had some form of Internet in use already for engineering departments and so on that was predating the web. Um, and everybody thought this was the coolest thing. And we were having so much fun mm. using it, although it was, again, a nerdy thing. And, uh, you know, individuals were using dial-ups and BBSs, which is bulletin board services, which are basically a bunch of users dialed into one computer and, and swapped information or files and then mm. dialed back out. But the Internet was, you know, much broader. And, and so all this was happening for 10, 15 years. Nobody knew what this is going to be except maybe cheaper file transfer. There was no yeah. known business model. And so right now we're struggling with, okay, do we want to, are we providing utility? Are we providing as I say, smiles instead of miles? Are we providing fun, joy, connectivity? And I've made this argument before that, that we would evolve and the direction is probably towards, you know, whatever happened historically with transport, it became much more emotional and much more driven by other factors than utility. But I'm stating now the question, the much more tangible question, what is going to be the measurement? What is going to be the essential thing that people will would be proud of? Would it not be of? time? Time is very utilitarian. It's also effectively money, um, but it is, it is uh, in a sense, um, uh, what the car tries to solve or tried to solve. And we can argue certainly that there's a, there's a, a more efficient method. But the problem with that is that it's, it's effectively a zero-sum game, right? So if you are able mm. to take it from someone else, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like really not a growing the pie type of solution. So you will make money selling time effectively and reduction in congestion, etc. But the, the, the main thing that's going to drive the industry to new heights, to saying that, look, this is, we're going to be bigger than automotive. We're going to be bigger than any mode that happened in history. That has to create more demand that actually has to create more trips and maybe actually give us less time. Mind you, keep in mind, again, the same thing happened with computers and smartphones, that initially, okay, computers supposed to save us time, let you do things quickly, efficiency, yada, yada, productivity, right? That was the thing that Microsoft sold. But people began wasting time with computers and then they began playing games and social media and social connections and doing all kinds of uh, entertainment on these on these machines and now you know a lot of people are you know shaking their heads saying what a waste of time a computer is and of course what a waste of time a smartphone is and how could kids waste so much time playing with these things um, and again mm -hmm. that is in some ways okay there are negative implications but the fundamental thing is that these occupy a central 
central point in a central place in our society and, 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 and everything revolves around them. And that's why the asking should be, what can we do with uh, transportation to say that not, it's not just an enabler, but it is the thing we, we crave in and of itself. And uh, right now it's a cost, it's a friction, it's a, it's a, it's a negative. It's a ne you know, it's something we have to, we have to cope with. Um, and and it's 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 the, all of these media types I mentioned all of this stuff about communications all this it transformed itself over time mm. from being a utility and something that was very effective and therefore you could measure the outcomes in improved productivity you could definitely measure the phone network in terms of how many uh, you know uh, how many post how much postage you saved how much how many letters fewer letters you sent because you had a telephone now. But in fact, people made a lot more phone calls than they ever sent letters. And people did a lot more computing once they had a PC than they would have ever done had they had a time-shared system at work. So it's kind of mm -hmm. market-creating. All of these innovations were market-creating. They created their own markets. And I, I, this is, again, if, and again, I go back to this over and over again, if micromobility does nothing more than save time and money it's not going to amount to all that much. It's going to be great. It's going to be a net benefit to society, but it's not going to change it in fundamental ways for the better or worse, but it's not going to change it. We don't know the future. And of course, there are positives and negatives, but all technology can be misused. All technology has unintended consequences, but it's transformative in society. And of course, I'm an optimist and I look back in time and I see the world now being better than it ever was. Um, nostalgia is just a lot of dreaming. Uh, the facts are that society is better now with all of these technologies I mentioned than it would have been a century or two ago without them. Hmm. And so the question is, again, is micromobility one of those giant pillars as the ones I mentioned? And, and that, I, that's, my, that's my assumption, let's say. And I'm, I'm obviously, you know, a big fan of this. Uh, I really think it's got that potential, again, because the enablers are so cool, right? We got electric um, energy in the form of batteries that are really amazing. Motors are really amazing. Communication, that's really amazing. Sensing, that's really amazing. Mm. And net network effects, they're really amazing. All these things are being applied to this one area of our lives, which until now has been completely bereft of any of that. So that's where the car is now. So anyway, that's why I think... We need to stay, and this is, again, it's an open, it's a rhetorical question. What should we be measuring that really reflects yeah. where we're going to end up? Yeah, well, uh, I am curious to hear what our listeners think. So if they have any, any thoughts on it, please uh, ping both Horace and I on Twitter uh, with, with thoughts about that. I'm sure this will spur a discussion, one hopes. Um, or come and join us on the Triple M Slack. Uh, as well and we can also discuss it there um cool well look i the other the other thing as well horace just because if we're talking about things that bring us joy and uh what 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 is uh what is the purpose of driving if not for pure enjoyment um mm -hmm. is the release of gordon murray's t50 uh mm -hmm. supercar yeah so i know that you're we, for anybody who's sort of uh coming to micromobility uh yes horace and i are both total car nuts <laughs> but in and, the way be careful i'm a total car nut. i think you are too but in a way that you know people are nuts about horses right i my wife is and i've known many people in micromobility <laughs> also who um i can name one person i'm not gonna do that but one person who's a big big uh uh, let's say equestrian 
Uh, the fact is, though, you don't want to use those machines for the mundane work. You don't want to use a horse to, to plow a field or a horse to uh, pull a wagon load and, and die of as a beast of burden. You want to enjoy those vehicles and those horses as, uh, as objects of, let's Majestic say... Majestic beasts. Uh, yeah, which, exactly. Yes. It's like they, they, they have a purely emotional value for me, not a utility value, which is, which is a big difference. I, I admire their engineering as you might admire the, the breeding of a, of a, of a horse. Um, and this is, brings us yeah, you, to Gordon Murray. So Gordon Murray, uh, we're not here to sell you his car, by the way, his new car. <laughs> Uh, because I think there's none but left. But we will, because, oh my God, it's amazing. Well, no, no, you can't. You can't sell it, because I think these sold all the ones he's going to make. So th that's yeah. the first problem. Yeah. It's, this, this thing is going to be made. I think they're going to make 125 of them, 100 of which are, are no. street cars and, and 25 are racing cars. Um, oh, are they doing 25 racing cars? Yeah. Like so so I think he said that at the time of launch, even though he had only published a sketch, a pencil sketch, of what he was coming up with, like maybe did that two years ago. Uh, they sold two thirds of their production already before the launch. Um, and bearing in mind, by the way, that this is a, a, a successor, a direct descendant of the McLaren F1, which he did in like 1992, so it was like 30 years ago. So the McLaren F1 um, came to be regarded as maybe the apex of automotive engineering, at least of the 20th century, maybe even to, to till about 10, 15 years ago. Um, and that car was sold when it launched at the highest price anyone has ever had ever heard of. In 1992, I think it went for a million dollars. And today, they're going for over $20 million. So, you know, keep in mind that anyone buying a new sort of a successor to that car is probably going to make a, a ton of money just because there are so few of them and it's going to Even be... Even if they're paying 2.5 million pounds for them. And that is the price. They're going to charge for this. Yeah, about yeah. 2.5 million pounds, I think, even without tax. I think uh, it's ridiculously... I don't know what that's in dollars, maybe closer to 3 million. Um, it's easily the, probably the most expensive car in the world. There's only going to be 125. But that's not what this... We're not, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about the, the, no. the count, the number of vehicles. or the, We're going to talk about <sighs> philosophy here. And what's at work with this, with this particular model, and I think this is what Gordon Murray embodies, he's just a maniacally focused person, very much in the, in the, sort of, in the tradition of, of, of Johnny Ive, although Johnny Ive might say he's in the tradition of Gordon Murray. Um, and this is a person who's obsessed about achieving the ultimate in, in their particular uh, line of work, in their particular area of expertise in their particular area of passion. And in the, in the case of Gordon Murray, moving from, as he did from uh, Formula One into sports cars, which was McLaren, and then into production systems, which came to be known as iStream, and, and even microcars. Given that he is sort of Mr. Supercar, Mr. Hypercar, he actually drives a very modest either, I think he's driven in, the, in his sort of commuting life, he's driven minis and Fiat 500s and... He had a, he had a uh, smart roadster. And the smart and roadster. He was, yeah. he was so, and he talked about it with such fervor that I went and bought one. Yeah, so you, you <laughs> bought one because of him and I bought one of my cars because of him because he was on the record saying at one moment in time that he thought the Porsche, uh, Porsche uh, Cayman was the best uh, sports car around so I ended up buying one too. Um, but yeah, yeah that's what nice. he's like. So he, 
So he's mm-hmm. obsessed about about hyper stuff, but also it's about really small microcars. And and he, um, when you hear him talk, and this is why we recommend. Maybe we'll have drop you a link or two about you know these reveals that he did on 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 YouTube about his new new project. You'll see kind of where you, you're where the product takes you if you follow this obsession with with the one things or the few things that you love and care the most about and that's really what i people what really attracts people to him and to his products it's not that they are ever going to become super fast drivers or that they're actually going to max out these cars it's almost impossible to do it certainly not legally certainly not not on any roads um maybe on a track with a professional driver but really they're much more attracted to his passion his dedication his his single-mindedness and so what I wanted to point out, okay, that we're using this as an example to also kind of appeal to people who are in micromobility to think about your product as an object of passion, of excellence, of dedication to, uh, you know, achievement beyond, beyond just good enough. Um, although good enough wins, um, the image of greatness sells. And mm. it's 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 this idea, this 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 nature of uh, uh, wanting to wanting to aspire, and and it's, yes, it's, you can call it marketing, but it's, it effectively it's how Porsche was built. They won it on the racetrack, so they ended up being, you know, a great brand. Uh, the Italians with with Ferrari, Alfa Romeo, Lancia, and others also went racing and, and tried to make sports cars, but really ended up selling more much more regular cars. Um, and for that reason, I also wanted to give a shout out to those who are dedicated to trying to make micromobility also a competitive sport. Um, we're mm-hmm. going to have these folks on, on the show, I hope, very soon. Uh, but the ESC.live, which is uh, the e-scooter uh, league, which actually has a re- uh, released inf- um, uh, this, this uh, uh, partnership, uh, released... Uh, uh, um, uh, the the their their uh, manufacturing partnership for their uh, racing uh, scooters, which is with Williams, which of course is a competitor to McLaren. No way! I didn't know that. Yes, oh, did, they, did they release that information? Oh, they that's did. So cool. They did. And and so Williams, yeah. Williams, which by the way in the '90s was a bit. Oh, apologies for the low flying aircraft here. Um, Williams w- was a bitter rival of McLaren in the in the Formula One world. Uh, they were up there duking it out uh, versus um, uh, Ferrari and Renault mm. and Honda um, before even Mercedes was in the game, before um, maybe Benetton was in the game. But this is like in the 90s. Williams and, and McLaren were the, were the two main rivals. And of course, each one spun off engineering units that do outsourcing work or they do work for other companies. Um, and, and so out of the Williams engineering group, they are developing a scooter for racing, and I think that's fantastic news. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it kind these, of these scooters are going to go just for for reference as well. These scooters are going to go 100 kilometers an hour. Yep. they're going to be which is 62 miles an hour. Insane. 62 on a scooter. Yeah. Think about that, and also you know what that means for the brakes, what that means for the turning and cornering. Um, also, they're going to accelerate at you know more than automotive speeds. I'm sure. Um, yeah. but, but these races well, it's gonna be insane. depends on the track design, depends on a lot of things, but we're going to probably talk to those folks separately, but let, I just, yeah. um, I'm pointing out what the role of passion is. It's the, whether you're in the, you know, designing hypercars and creating an amazing brand and, and, 
loyal followers well, or, or racing. For folks who, do, I mean, the, the, the thing that's actually the most interesting about, so Gordon Murray is in part the reason that this podcast exists. Because when I had finished up at Uber, I had finished, I, I came to you, Horace, and I said, what is going on with iStream? And this whole yeah. light weighting methodology that Gordon Murray has been trying to apply to, to, to these cars. And, and the long history has been that Gordon Murray in 2011 released the T25, which was the sort of super lightweight car. And he said, I want to do, I want to use my manufacturing technique to be able to do these lightweight cars. And then you had obviously covered it in a sim car. And then I had wanted to do further follow up. And you'd, but, but the point was around hyper lightweighting of vehicles. Yeah. And was, actually that was, was not uh, possible. It was, I might even push this a little bit, but I, I think Gordon Murray has a lot to do with with the creation of the micromobility idea, at least in my head. Uh, maybe he didn't influence others the way he influenced me, but I hope I influence others as well. And the, the idea of the Murray T25, which again, you said it was 11, I think he actually began looking at this problem in 2008. Um, and so he's been always like obsessed about lightness. Uh, he created another car called the Rocket, which was literally like the lightest car, the lightest thing on four wheels. It had no, no, it was a one passenger race car, basically. Um, then he developed uh, uh, also the T25, which was, had the same three seat layout that the F1 has and that the new P50, uh, T50 has. Um, but the point is that he was obsessed with lightness because he came from Formula One. Again, there, mm. adding lightness means winning. Um, some other racing genius said once um if you add horsepower you start winning in the straights if you add lightness you start winning everywhere on the track this is mm. so important and he knew that from his years and years at, my, at formula one he brought it by the way the, the the f1 was the first consumer vehicle using carbon fiber it was used in formula one in the 80s he brought it to the cars in the 90s, and, and BMW brought it to a mass production with the BMW i3 in 2014, which is actually why I got excited about that car as well. So the idea, mm. the, 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 the thread that ties this all together is lightness. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm keen on, on defining micro-ability around weight. Um, it is also heat who taught me that making things lighter is much, much harder than adding power. That, in yeah. fact, the more weight begets more weight. So it's actually you're fighting against almost entropy as you're doing so. So you want, you, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the impetus to get bigger and heavier is irresistible. And you have to be absolutely psychotic to go against it. And, and, and that was what made me think that why, why is the industry rushing off that cliff? when instead we should mm. be looking, and that requires rethinking everything. And, and by that, yeah. of course, he meant rethinking the car and rethinking the manufacturing, but I went further with micromobility. He said, we have to rethink the very idea of a car. And it need not be a car. Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 the thing that's crazy is like, yes, I agree with you, absolutely. I do want to point out that that car, the three-seater, which will be the, the, what the T50 is going to be, is 986 kilos when fully loaded. It's not a micro-vehicle, no. It is, but, but... No, it's not a micro-vehicle, but, my goodness, 
the the that is incredibly light. It is lighter it's than six hundred and fifty horsepower. Okay, yeah. So it has thousand one hundred RPM. Oh uh, God, I, well, I didn't want to get dragged into yeah. numbers, but let me give you one more. Yeah. Um, although it's got that weight, it is effectively the weight of a Mazda Miata, and mm. that weight with three passengers, by the way. Uh, cap cap capability and actually probably a little bit smaller in size even it's very tiny in physical dimensions but that weight with that horsepower and that aer aerodynamic capability it's got a fan which allows you to effectively man manage your aerodynamics dynamically like you know in real time with uh, with with uh, with computation uh, without adding wings or without adding all kinds of surfaces and ugliness it actually does it with a smooth body shape so that vehicle with those fundamentals in it right there's the, the size the weight by the way size is very important too not just weight because it, the the drag goes up with the cube of the cross section of the vehicle no matter how slippery it is mm. if, if it's mm. big it's going to have to create a big big hole in the atmosphere right, as it moves along so so it helps Im immensely to have the the, the overall uh a cross-section of the vehicle small, uh, which is, again, also one of the things that goes in the wrong direction with cars. But, uh, but, but he just, you know, you, you check it out, of course. There's much better people talking about numbers than we, but I think the, 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 this will be a superlative. It may be the swan song of the automotive world. It may be the last hurrah before it all goes electric. Um, and maybe it all goes away, period, because uh, it goes the way of the racehorse uh, instead of uh, the, the new era that we're expecting. Uh, but it is a fascinating worldview. Yes, absolutely. And the one part about it is that uh, I did find very interesting is that as he was talking about it, and so, uh, so Horace and I have both watched all five hours of programming that happened to be released about the sort of all the interviews that uh, Gordon Murray did with all the different people. But he did point out, he said, look, I'm releasing this car. I'm telling you a little bit about the figures, but I'm not going to tell you the performance figures. I don't care about them. Mm -hmm. what, I'm, what I care about is making this incredible driving experience. It's all about the driver. I want the driver to be in the middle of the car. I right. want it to be an old there is stick no shift. I don't want it to be paddles. There's yeah. nothing fancy about it. There's no extra, you know, all these extra things that all the other cars have. I don't care. I just want it to be the most pure unadulterated driving experience as possible and when i think about well, well when i think about what you talk about horace with what is the ultimate experience that would be possible with micro mobility what is the what is the part where you talk about the market for smiles like what is that j most joyous exquisite experience going to look like on an e-bike yeah. i don't know anybody who's trying to answer that question yet and i think there should be some well I, I maybe i'd like to tout my own company <laughs> bond mobility certainly looking at it um but uh, you yeah. know I'll, I'll refrain um um but the the point is to to think about uh those words and by the way just backing up a bit when you said that he doesn't care he didn't care about that on the F1 either. And as a result, that car became the fastest production car ever made, 240 miles an hour top speed, which wasn't broken for more than a decade. Um, I do believe that because he doesn't care, this will be the fastest car on the road ever. It'll overtake any hypercars in the, in the market today in terms of basic parameters like zero to 60 and, and top speed and all those other things. But he's, he's, he's adamant that he, like, actually that doesn't matter. What matters is the way it feels. And it's true. In many ways, by the way, he sounds a lot like Steve Jobs 
when or uh, mm. when he says, you know, we don't we don't talk about specs. When we launch a product like the iPhone or the iPad, we just want to have people have this amazing experience to fall in love with it. And to have that, there is a little bit of a wall factor. Yeah, using touch for the first time is an epiphany, right? Probably riding in a car when you have a central seating position. Literally, you're in the middle of the car. You have beautiful visibility all around you as if you were in a fighter plane cockpit. That you have the, 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 the ability to accelerate. By the way, that engine spins to its red line, which is some ridiculous number, like 18,000 RPMs, within like less than... I don't, less than half a second, which means that it, it has a, a potential for picking up speed, uh, like unlike anything else. Um, but all of that, all of that is in service of this, this, this je ne sais quoi, this un, intangible, this unknowable. And, and, and when you put it this way, um, there's, a, there's a famous phrase, I don't know if it was... Um, uh, a philosopher who came up with it and said, as soon as you define something, it loses its power. Uh, so you have uh, uh, an indefinable quality, an undefinable quality has an essential magic to it, an essential power to it, because it is indefinable. And uh, in some ways, this comes full circle to our initial open question about how to define, or not just how to define, but how to measure micromobility. It is at that moment when we do not know that it actually has this magical power. And that's where, you know, from it, of course, people eventually do define it, eventually come to terms with it. Poets write the poems, etc., which capture mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. ethos, capture the zeitgeist, capture it. You know, that's the job of poets. Um, but, it, you know, as long as we have this moment, it is magical moment. And, um, and so, you know, there's a lot of... There's a lot to think about here, and I, I, I think the, the combination, and you, you might say, you know, what, what's a micromobility podcast doing talking about cars? Well, it's, you know, it, 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 what would a micro, what would a car podcast be in 1910 talking about bicycles and trains? I'm sure they would have talked a lot about bicycles and trains. They would have talked a lot about mm. telegraph as well, which was something that was around for a while as well and changed the world. Um, we just built built a world we have on the shoulders of giants and they came before us we have to respect them we have to also say that their time has come or gone and and so yeah. i think it's it's uh it's one of those things that um that i think is poetic about about uh about our industry is is how how really and and sometimes well, there's people knock it that saying oh it's derivative well, of course it's derivative everything's derivative Totally. Well, I'm waiting for someone to go and become the Gordon Murray of the e-scooter championship world and mm. then to come out and build the McLaren F1 of scooters. And maybe there and just that. won't be just scooters. Maybe there'll be various other vehicle types that will emerge out of this. Maybe two wheels, maybe four wheels, maybe small wheels, yep. maybe big wheels. But the point is, if you throw somebody, like, like in the car industry, what happened is if you threw the world a technology in the case of the automobile it was internal combustion the idea of a very miniaturized motor as opposed to a very large don't forget by the way an early gasoline engine was a piston driven machine that that was very similar in the logic of a steam engine which is also a piston driven machine and yet it the the, the steam engine that was external combustion that required a boiler to create the steam the internal combustion was very much miniaturized so that 
the explosion and the heat and the energy was all generated inside the piston without the need for a boiler. That was the big deal. But when you threw the world that technology, what it built was not a better locomotive. And you would have thought, hey, new engine machine, new engine together. Eventually it got to locomotives with diesel, but when it, when it was, it was, it was reduced to its essential element, which was the, 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 the you know, internal combustion multi-cylinder engine, we ended up with cars. And this is what, one of the things that enables uh, micromobilities that we ended up with motors and batteries, which are much, much smaller than internal combustion. It's just smaller. And that means you don't necessarily apply those technologies best in a car. And that's what the car industry is doing. It's like, yeah, we'll take batteries, we'll take electric motors, but we're going to stuff them in our big cars and we're going to get thousands of batteries and enormous motors that generate enormous torque, far beyond what is needed. But the micro world says, we'll just take enough that we need and move people mm -hmm. along. And that's it. And, and so, the, the, I don't know, maybe I'm overstating it, but it's so magical to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Look, we're up against time, but brilliant, Horace. I thank you very much for uh, the, the, the treaties on, on Gordon Murray and on, uh, and on measurement. It was uh, excellent.